we think we need less of is reduced variability. The thing we need more of is embracing variability. Hi, I'm Holly Ransom, and welcome to Coffee Pods, a podcast devoted to fueling your difference. Here at Coffee Pods, we have a simple hypothesis that in the mere amount of time it takes to share a cup of coffee with someone, we can tap into a lifetime of experience. And that's exactly what we aim to do here at Coffee Pods, to give access to some incredible individuals who've marched to the beat of their own drum and who are willing to share their advice, their highs, their lows, their insights, in order to help give each and every one of us the toolkit and the inspiration to fuel the difference that we're trying to make in our own lives, communities and organisations. Coffee Potters, we're getting into the thick of leadership and culture today, and we're doing it in a pretty extraordinary setting. Our guest is Captain David Marquet. Now, David was a captain in the US Navy. He was due to take over a ship he'd spent 12 months training for before being reassigned at the last minute to the worst performing submarine in the entirety of the US Navy. Uh, Ended up taking over the USS Santa Fe. And the story of transformation that he led there, not only is he written about in his book, which is Turn the Ship Around, but Stephen Covey himself wrote about him in The Eighth Habit as leading the most empowered organisation he'd ever seen. It is an extraordinary transformation story. And there are so many great practical lessons in here, a couple that I've already gone and applied with my team already. I really hope you enjoy it. Here is Captain David Marquet. Well, David Marquet, I'm so thrilled to have you on Coffee Pods. Thank you so much for making the time. Thanks, Holly, for having me on your show. One of the things I found really interesting reading about your background is you found your passion for leadership in what I would describe as an unconventional way, devouring, if I'm right, um, 65, oh, 6,500 pages worth of naval operations history books in the Pittsburgh Library. Um, <laughs> what it, was it that struck a chord with you? Uh, well, okay, so I, when I grew up, it was in the 1970s in America, which was a depressing time. Yeah. Everybody was, I certainly was depressed. First of all, I was going for high school, so that was like bad <laughs> enough. Said. But um, it was a tough time in the country, and we had the ga- oil crisis, the gas prices went up, and we kind of lost our way. Vietnam had happened. And we were in this contest with the Soviet Union, which for, for me, I, for some reason, as an idealistic young man, I felt very personal. And I felt that this idea of liberal democracy, where you can choose your spouse, your profession, your religion, you could be secure in your home without fear of violence. I mean, these uh, were important to me. Now, I came from a family of scientists. I, there's, sometimes I show a picture in my keynotes of the math team. Now, this is the, where the geeks and the introverts lived in high school because you get to hide from people. And I was one of those guys. And um, I'm not looking at the camera. I'm sort of have this borderline autistic, social, socially disordered. So I can't even look at the camera. Uh, and I came home one day, told my parents that I felt strongly about our role for the Constitution and that I was going to join the military. And they're like, oh, my God, what, why would you do such a thing? You know, you're going to get beat up. Look at yourself. And uh, but I said, but look, I, I read about it. I got it all planned out. There are these things that are called submarines. And the job of the submarine is to hide from other people. Uh-huh. I'm going to go be a submarine commander. I had no idea what I was getting into. But I had this passion. The, the government gave me a book and they said, here's your leadership book. And then, of course, it says 
leadership can be defined as directing the thoughts, plans, and actions. Not just the plans and actions, but the thoughts, plans, and actions of others. I was scary good at that, at telling people what to do. And I was rewarded. I got promoted for it. I got awards for it. Oh, you went in, you fixed everything, and then you told everyone what to do. Of course, you know, everyone hated me. I, you know, stop doing that. Do this and Why are you thinking again? You know, just, just do what I say. It'll all work out better. And then when I'd leave, you know, things would fall apart. But that was just further testament of my genius leadership ability. Anyway, <laughs> it, it all fell apart um, when I went to be a submarine commander. And at the last minute, I got sent to a ship that I didn't know the technical detail. I got shifted at the very last minute to a different submarine. And uh, this idea that I'm going to go in and tell everyone what to do just totally came, the wheels came off. And I realized my whole leadership approach was, was limiting. It was demeaning. It was not about the team. It was about me being the smartest person in the room. And it was very humiliating. And my instinct was to tell everybody, hey, you guys got to take initiative. You got to lean in. You got to blah, blah, blah. But it really all started with me. And I realized that's an abdication of my behavior. And so I need to lean back. You can only control. Uh, I, I, I feel so strongly we can only control our own behavior in life. Any attempts to control other people's behaviors are, are icky manipulations. And so by leaning back and figuring how to ask questions differently and figuring how to keep my mouth shut longer, it created space for the team to lean into me. You were in command yeah. of a nuclear-powered ballistic missile submarine. Is that as daunting a job as it sounds to, to the everyday person? It's a pretty scary job. I mean... I have a knack for listening to words and we spend, a, I mean, if you say the wrong words, like the, the wrong people die, including maybe you and your team. So, so we tend to focus on the words we use and, and we have, um, you know, we were like, there are certain words you can't say on a submarine. Like you wouldn't say, uh, for example, close is not a word we use. We would say shut. The reason because close, because close can be confused with blow, which, you know, close the valve, blow. And so, and so we, there are all these uh, rituals for minimizing any ambiguity that could come across in language. And that's kind of, that got in my head pretty good. And that's how I look at um, leadership now. It's why do we use the words we use? And, and my hypothesis is we just inherit them from the Industrial Revolution. So we're using an Industrial Revolution language in a post-Industrial Revolution workplace. But unless we're careful, the language will serve as an anchor. I want to delve into this whole period of time where you were in charge of the command of the Santa Fe. Yeah. Can you paint a picture for our listeners when what you inherited on the Santa Fe, but also how many people on a submarine? What, what, what sort of the scale of the challenge that, that faced you there? Yeah, so uh, there are there are 140 sailors. We have men and women on our submarines, but the Santa Fe was a smaller ship, so there were only men. We only have the women on the larger ships. What happened was the captain, the ship was doing very poorly. The morale was at the, at the bottom. And you measure this by how many of the sailors re-enlist in the Navy. And, and on the Santa Fe, it was only three in 12 months, which is, Ouch. the average is like uh, 18 and you might have a high of 30 something. 
so that was at the bottom of the fleet. And the performance was very bad. And the captain quit. He wasn't fired, but he just resigned, which is really unheard of. And so that's why, even though I, I, I was like in the pipeline to go to another ship and I had trained for 12 months to learn every detail of that ship so I could like direct the thoughts, plans, and actions of others, they said, you know, that ship's fine. We'll leave the captain there. We got to fill this hole. You're going to go Marquet, Santa Fe. And I was like, oh my gosh. It was depressing when I walked on board. You know, people, which they're shuffling around like zombies, they're looking at their feet. Yeah, they're looking at their feet. They're, they're grunting when you bump into them. It was, it was interesting because I thought, well, here, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to start telling them the right way to do things. I'm going to make good decisions. The performance will go up and then they'll be happier. Okay, this is not at all. This is to- was totally wrong. The first thing that happened was I made a huge mistake where I gave an order that couldn't be done. It was ba- I was like shift into second gear on a motor that only had one gear. And the officer repeated it. And when it came to light that this motor only had one gear, and I looked at the officer and said, well, what, did you know this? Oh, yes, sir, I did. What, what the heck, man? Like, well, you told me to say it because it's all about doing what you're told. And my head, look, if, you, if your old paradigm, your paradigm of leadership is my job is to make decisions and you make a bad decisions, then you need to make better decisions. Since I didn't know so much about the ship, I couldn't conceive that that was an answer for me. So I said, you know, the problem is not I made a bad decision. The problem is I made decisions. I need to get these guys making decisions and telling me what to do. And again, going back to the language thing, my instinct, again, was to tell them, oh, you guys be proactive and lean in and all that. You're blah, 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 empowered. But I said, you know, here's what's going to do. I'm just not going to tell you what to do. In other words, I'm going to lean back and I'm going to create this gap. And then you lean into me. You fill the gap. And you're going to do it by just telling me what you intend to do. And if I don't say no, the answer is yes. So most organizations are permission-based organizations, which means if I don't say yes, the answer is no. And of course, what happens is we spend a lot of time waiting. We have dead time. I'd like to do this. I want to start this. In the, and no one can do anything because they're waiting for the meeting. They're waiting for the permission. And in an intent-based organization, that's all wiped away. And there's this bias for action. People say, this is what I intend to do. And if you don't stop me in 24 hours, I'm going to start doing it. We intend to launch a product on time. We intend to modify it. We, we intend to load the torpedo. We intend to whatever it happens to be. And they feel like they own it. It's not lip service. They do own it. But it's still safe because you have the ability to veto and say, yeah, no. Well, actually, ask questions. Like, there's this idea of feedback. We say... I think most of the leadership stuff we talk about today is backwards. So the idea is, oh, we're going to give feedback. We're going to teach people how to give feedback really effectively. This is nonsense. Okay, what you want is people to invite feedback. Mm. And so when you have to say, here's what I intend to do before you do it, you're, it's baked into the process. You're exposing yourself. Hey, here's what I intend to do. Anybody on the team see a problem? Now's the time to speak up. I'm, 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 making, I'm not hiding it. I'm inviting feedback. So it's baked into the thing. And, and then, okay, here's what we're going to do. And if someone says later, well, I wish you hadn't done this. Well, you had a chance. So there's a lot of rich communication. So, so I leaned back. And I, I got to tell you, for your listeners, maybe some of you guys are better at doing this than me. But for me, this was very scary. But I have this activity we do with our CEOs that we coach is go when the next 10 times you go out to eat, you cannot order. You got to turn to the server and say, you pick for me and don't play it safe. You got to give up control in that very small, safe way. 
and not, not, I'm not talking about, oh, give me two choices, I'll pick. Okay, because that's not giving up control. You just got to say, you can say, hey, I don't eat meat or I'm allergic to nuts, fine. But I don't even want to know what it is till it shows up in front of me because I want to, two things. I want you to live with the anxiety of not knowing what it's going to be. And number two, I want you to read their reaction because some of them are going to wade into it. They're going to be like, yes. And some of them are going to be like, yeah, I don't know. Are you sure? And then, and then your job is to make it okay for them. And the key word is safe. You've got to make it safe for them to make that decision for you. That's exactly what's going to happen at work. It's the same feeling. When you feel that at work, you're on the right track. Like I think about the, the military as being sort of the epitome of command and control leadership, right? Which is exactly sort of the departure point you're talking about. We need to change to a new style of leadership. But also, yeah. not only were you good at that style of leadership, as you said, you're a natural leader, you got promoted up the ranks through doing that. But also we build habits, right? So you've got this reinforced over the course of your career many times over. <laughs> and then you're getting to this point where that doesn't work anymore. And how did, like, the humility that you had to step, lean back, as you say, and go, okay, I need to try a different approach. I'd love to hear you unpack sort of how you went through that habit change process and how you kind of constructed a new way of doing things when you'd had the the blueprint being developed on the same plan for so long. Yeah. How did you create a new way? Well, I appreciate you saying humility, but I don't, it didn't feel like that. It felt like pure fear. Okay. Because I knew if I kept giving orders, eventually I'd give an order that we would all that would kill us because they would still follow it. There's another submarine while I was in command. Captain was a classmate of mine from the Naval Academy. Didn't make this change. Gave a bad order. The crew followed it. They kind of knew it was bad. Nine people died. Wow. And, and so people die when they just do what they're told as opposed to engaging their brains. That's the the worst behavior in humanity in cultures, nations. But the key is, is to give your team, we call it yellow card me, yellow card. So you get, go, go buy those referee yellow cards and then write one thing on them, like yellow card me if I tell you what to do or yellow card me if I speak more than four sentences in a row or, or you know, or, or, or you don't feel like I'm listening to you or, you know, whatever, it has, just, just pick one thing though. And then, and then give and it to your behavior team. You're trying to shift. So you're trying to get people to call you on it. It can't be us telling him, listen, you need to get better at this. So we're going to yellow card you. It needs to be him passing the cards out to the team and saying, look, you're helping me because I need to get better. And when I'm in my own head, I don't realize I'm doing it. Blah, 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 blah. You know, it's just like, um, you know, in a triathlon, you're trying to fix your swimming stroke. You know, you need an external observer to say, okay, yeah, your, your, your catch is too far out or whatever it happens to be. Don't make it emotional. And I'm interested, like when you did it, were you picking a combination of the people you were leading and your peers? Like how did you make sure you got the right complement of perspectives too? It was the team of people that I trusted the most, which was, and it turns out there was great, 100% overlap, and the ones that had the greatest observation of the people who had the most opportunity to observe my personal behavior. Mm-hmm. So it was the leadership team that I interacted with most frequently because they're the ones who, who would see it. And, and, and you need frequent data points. So, I mean, the Santa Fe is quite an incredible story because, as you said, it started as the worst performing ship in and the naval fleet. It, it rose through the ranks to be the number one. Stephen Covey wrote about you and the story in The Eighth Habit. When you reflect back, what are your key couple of takeaways about 
what it takes to transform a culture. Because you talked about that subpar performance, that negative environment, that lack of engagement you walked into. What were the couple of things that made the really big difference? Number one is that I was committed um, to staying the course. And there were 101 speed bumps along the way, at which point if I hadn't been adequately steeled, for the competition, I would have given up. And one of the things that helps you through the dark times is an external focus. The external focus for me was, we're doing this for the country, for the people of the world whose lives are potentially gonna be better, and for our team, these people right here. Not, oh, well, you know, I'm going to look bad or, you know, maybe I'm not going to get promoted. That's an internal focus. Okay. And I don't, I don't think that's going to drive, that's not enough to drive you through the mud and the muck and the sleepless nights of the bad times. Um, secondly, the team was committed with me. And like I said, I thought we were going to improve performance and then people get happier, but the, it was actually the opposite. I gave them control of their workplace. Mm. It sounds big, but it really was not that big. You know, just from saying, I'd like to do this to I intend to do this. And they saw that they were going to be in control of their lives. Number one. Number two, I did the uncool thing of talking about our mission. I said, you know, why are we here on a submarine? What's, you know, well, I don't know. You know, we go to see, well, why? You know, and I kind of like pulled that string. You can't promote, you can't do any. The only thing you can do as a captain of a submarine in terms of sort of, you know, typical HR levers is you can punish people. But this idea that it was a team, or our phrase was no they on Santa Fe. You, it was just, it was very, again, it was linguistic. You just could not use the word they to refer to other departments, other ranks, anybody else. You can only say we. And it was really interesting because Initially, you know, it didn't really feel like we, oh, they're in supply, they're in operations, I'm in engineering. But then our, I, I, I'm sure this is what happened. Our brains changed and they grew and we grew the synapses together that said, well, I keep talking about Holly, like I use the word we, so I guess she's on my team. And so therefore the synapses grow together. Now it feel, now you feel like, now it felt like. And now you um, act like it. Yeah, and then and then the then all these other behaviors happen. All these other team behaviors happen, but it starts with the language. But the other thing, you have to decouple the performance from your own personality. So at the end, I was really struggling hard to get myself out of it, to bake the changes into the ship, into the policies and the structures of the ship. And I was changing the permissions, the forms that we had to get permission where I would like line it out instead of it saying submitted, reviewed, approved, it would say submitted, approved. You know, so I was doing sort of these structural things, which my hope was the person coming after me would have a really hard time. I think you're right that there's not much consciousness of the language we use more often than not. What would be your your nominations as words you'd like to scrap from the leadership dictionary and ones you think we need to be using more? Maybe it's not so much words as as as, as phrases. Sure. And yep, that's fair. Habits. So, for example, uh, when we I, we run a workshop, and at the beginning of the workshop, I'll give uh, imagine. Okay, so there's a whole bunch of people. They're sitting at tables of six or eight or whatever, and I say, okay, at your table, 
I want you to come up with one number. You as a table have to agree on one number. Let's say it's like how many jelly beans are in this jar. Mm -hmm. I haven't done that one yet, but let's just say it is. So what happens 99% of the time is someone will say, well, I think there's 850 jelly beans. And someone will say, well, no, no, I think it's 900. And, And so what happens is they immediately anchor the group and then we're arguing slightly different plus or minus. And the quiet person who thinks there's only 300 jelly beans never speaks up because they're so far from where the group is and their intuition is just too scary. So, so basically, there's two parts of the problem. One is, what does everybody think independently and diversely? And then let's collapse it down. But all groups skip the first part. This idea of embracing diversity embracing variability is automatic we skipped what what would that sound it would sound like this okay everybody before we contaminate you with the groups idea everybody write down on a piece of paper what you think the number is now flip the pieces of paper over let's look at the highest and the lowest and let's let's explore those let's give those people voice doesn't matter whether you're quietest person in the group we're going to respect whatever view you have and so the idea is I think the Industrial Revolution primed us very well to reduce variability because manufacturing is a reduced variability game. And so the thing we've got to get, we think we need less of is reduced variability. The thing we need more of is embracing variability. We want to build consensus in meetings. We want to get everyone on board. This is all crap, okay? This is all Industrial Revolution language. That's not what we want. We want to embrace variability. We, we companies spend a lot of money hiring a diverse cross-section of society, and then we throw them into meetings and structures that exactly squeeze all the variability out of them. And then we don't understand. So it doesn't matter how many men and women you have on, on your board, if you don't let people speak uh, what they think without fear of being socially... So psychological safety piece, isn't it? It has to be, yeah. So... It's weird. Like, I never thought, like, when you're a submarine commander, you don't care about psychological safety. We're going to kill the sink the end. We're like steely eyed, you know, and it's weird, but it's the most important thing because mm-hmm. you have to make decision after decision after decision in very complex and an unknowable situation where you could go north and it turns out they act, you actually should have gone south. And you would need to know as soon as possible that going north, that, that if there's indications that going north are not, is not the right answer, that you got to make it as easy as possible for your team to speak up, tell you that, and reverse course without this whole cultural thing, oh, we can't tell the captain. And like we know, one of the things that was very upsetting to me, after the Santa Fe, I went to the had a couple of jobs. I ended up in the Pentagon. This is the time the U.S. was going into Iraq. And one of the assumptions was that the population would, quote, open us with welcome arms. That would be seen by the population as a liberation, not an invasion. The very first units, Marine units, going into the southernmost cities in Iraq were being shot at by the people. And so the, the mid-level officers running and, and, and enlisted men in those units knew that this assumption was wrong. Twelve hours into the into the uh, operation, but we didn't set it up in a way that. When I mean we, I mean like the government. We didn't set it up in a way to say, "Look, this is a key assumption. If there's any counterfactual, like we're good here, does that make sense?" 
Oh yeah, sure. Head nod, not mindless head nodding. Not, hey, what are we missing? How could we be wrong? You know, what, you know, that kind of thing. And so it just makes me very upset because people die in industrial accidents and in situations like that because we don't create a decision structure which allows all voices to be heard. And I'm interested because one of my hypotheses is that one of the reasons that we haven't seen more of a move to this style that embraces diversity is it's much easier when everyone agrees, (laughs) you know, because when you've got either reinforcement of the way that you already think, you've got a command and control structure where you're pushing that down, or you've got groupthink where what's coming up is consistent. That's a lot easier to lead. I'd love um, any advice that you've got for leaders. Once you've got the 10 opinions, five of which completely disagree with one another, or perhaps are different versions of the truth. How do you get everyone on the same page and agree a way forward and not lose people by virtue of the fact their decision wasn't the one that was taken? So I think you're you're exactly right. It is easier and it's faster. It's always faster. And um, you could be wrong, but you're fast. Here's the thing. When, so you say, hey, what do you think? Should we go north? Let's just, let's pick a business case. Should we launch the product on time or delay release so we can add this other feature? You got people speaking out strongly on one side and strongly on the other side. Now, now, even though you're probably going to try and keep a neutral mind, you probably already have a gut feeling that you're going to lean in one direction. And, and what you need, really need to do then is, is put that aside, create a blank slate, and I call it the tell me time box. So the tell me time box is you go to people, especially either the minority or the people who, who are furthest from what you think, you know, without any information, you'd go. And you say, tell me more about that. You have to be genuinely curious in what they see that you don't see and think that you don't think. And the idea is I want you to believe that they are correct. They're actually right. And you have to explore it from that mindset. Now, the difference will be you'll actually ask questions from a mindset of curiosity and they will feel listened to. Or sometimes what we do is we send the two groups out and we say, talk to each other. When you come back, you guys are going to defend their position and you you guys are going to defend other positions. Yeah, that's really fun. And then you need a mechanism, okay, for how is the group decision going to be made? Now, on the submarine, a lot of times it would just come down to, as the captain, I would just make a decision. But the difference was, number one, everyone had a chance to participate ahead of time. And number two is even the people who, let's say uh, we're going to launch a product and there's a bunch of people who think we should delay launch. You don't try and convince them they're wrong. They're, they come to you, this is a terrible idea. Say, so, yeah, it might be. Okay, but we're gonna still going to launch it. Like, the, the behavior is we're going to launch. You can think it's terrible. I'm not going to be so intrusive as and, mm-hmm. I'm, and arrogant as to try and change how you think. I'm going to let you, I'm going to allow you to hold on to that. Uh, and number two is because we actually structured it in a way that they got, that they felt listened to, they don't say, oh, once again, they don't listen to me. They say, yeah, I didn't do it. They didn't, they didn't we're launching it. I think it's a bad idea, but at least they listened to me. Mm. And that reduces the sabotaging behavior that happens afterwards when we don't listen to people and say, oh, yeah, we're going to launch on time. They're like, yeah, screw that. I'm not on board. I like that a lot. That makes a lot of sense. And I think that piece around giving yourself a, a fixed amount of time because it makes it doable. I think if you just say to someone, you need to go and, in, you know, um, put yourself in their shoes and, and those things are a little bit too just generalist to be able to be, uh, people can't latch onto that. It's not pragmatic. Yeah. Enough. So instead of the problem, instead of being, I'm going to make a decision, the problem then becomes, 
what do they know that I don't know? You got to uncover that problem. That so then you're like, what is it? What is it that you're seeing that I don't see? What am I missing here? You talk a lot about the topic of greatness. Um, I'm interested for what you believe the most important thing is that each of us need to do to un- unlock the height of that greatness that's within each of us. What do you think is the barrier we need to knock away or the thing we need to embrace more? We got to be unafraid. This happens every day to me. I'm, I'm going to give a talk here in a couple hours. And if I'm worried about, make, like if your mindset is avoiding errors, it takes you to a dark place and you dwell on, oh, I did this and I stumbled there and I mumbled there and whatever. And I think for us, we, we want to be like superheroes where we, we achieve, we're going to achieve something great. Is it going to be perfect? No. Are there going to be mistakes? Yes. Here's another thing. Like uh, one company said, well, how are you going to create a burning platform? I said, I'm not, I'm not creating a burning platform because that means everyone's afraid and we're jumping off in all directions. Who knows? Like, let's create a beacon on the hill that we move towards. But anyway, that's not my job. Anyway, that's yours. But the, the <laughs> idea is, again, and it's weird because when I just think about my own life, like what is there to be afraid of? But for some reason, your head, you want to like be protective. The, the phrase I use sometimes is, is be, I, I say, don't be good, get better. And, and, the, and, it's, and it's a choice. You can't do both. Mm-hmm. because the behaviors for being good tend to be protective, but just really think about it. Like what is holding me back? Is it some image that other people have of the way I should be? Here's a very simple, it just struck me. So I have three kids and they're all in their thirties now. When I was a dad, well, I'm a dad, but when, when they were growing up, we would go to the pool and I would sort of sit on the side and let the kids play in the pool. But there was this one dad who was just making a big fool of himself. He was in the pool with his kids, splashing and playing, and of course having a good time. And they have, it was awesome. I was like, why this person has let go? Like I'm being controlled by my fear of, quote, looking bad in front of all these, who cares? I'm diminishing my experience in life. So get in the pool with your kids. Mm. Don't be an idiot. Don't sit on the side of the pool Say, oh, well, you know, I would do that different. Get in the pool. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I know you like to give uh, people leadership nudges. Um, At Coffee Pods, we call them calls to action. What nudge would you like to give to our audience? What would you like to encourage them to do? Um, Okay, so there was a couple. I'll just remind of the stuff. Well, number one is do this thing where you go out to eat the next 10 times. I love that. I'm going to do that. Keep a journal and reflect upon your feelings and how, uh, how the server responded. Uh, another one is play the feedback game. Get the yellow cards, pick one thing, and give them to your team. Uh, the other way to play the game is for 30 days in a row, ask someone that you interact with in the world to give you feedback. And then listen to your language. Get rid of all this self-affirming questions. Does that make sense? Are we good here? Uh, any, any question like that, that's binary and makes it hard for someone to tell you that you're screwed up, you want to get rid of and say, what am I missing? How could we be wrong? So final story, I was sitting with, um, a CEO of a tech company. He's one of our clients and there's a startup. It's his third, his third startup. He's one of these guys you want to hang around because he keeps making billions of dollars. And their latest thing is it's a text-based app for ordering stuff. 
where you can order and pay just by you text in like two beers. I'm sitting in seat 21A at the ball game. I'll take two buds. And they bring you two buds and you pay an Apple Pay. Um, so we were getting ready for this, uh, but it didn't work like six hours before game time. This is big oh, rollout. Yeah, and Apple had sent a whole bunch of executives. This is big. We're on track for a big calamity. And and so he and I, we're, we are at lunch about uh, three miles from the baseball park. And his team's at the baseball park trying to pass the thing to make it work. And he's on the phone with the project manager, uh, the project leader, who's this high, you know, she's a high-powered woman in tech. And he says to her, tell me if you need me and I'll come over. Sort of in a way that we would open up the uh, ability for her to say that. She didn't say it. She didn't say, yes, I need you. He hangs up the phone. We look at the menu. I said, you know what? Call her back and say, how helpful would it be if I were there? One to five. And he does. You know what she says? Five. So we close the menu. We go over the bottom line. It worked. Everything was, was a big win, blah, blah, blah. But the, it's weird to me how if you ask it one way, the answer is we end up staying in the restaurant but when you and the team flounders on by their own. But when you just change it a tiny bit, it's a totally different outcome. And these are the things that I'm just really interested in. So if any of your, any of the listeners, any of you guys out there listening have an example of that, please send me a note because I'm working on a new book and I'm going to. Great. Yeah. I'm talking, I'm talking about this idea. Like what are these small changes in language that might result in big changes in the outcome? Love it. And how can people reach you? What's the best way to find out more information? Um, So we have a website, davidmarquet.com. My email is david at turntheshiparound.com. Great. And we'll put all of that in the show notes as well. David, I can't thank you enough for your time. As I said, I was so looking forward to this conversation and I have well and truly um, not been disappointed with the amount of notes I've even taken sitting down here. I'm going to take on the challenge of uh, asking the server to determine my menu. I'm definitely going to try the uh, the yellow cards. Yeah, I want to know how that goes. And feel free to make it like, hey, I only want 600 calories. I mean, like you can bound it. That's a, yeah. that's good clarity. But let me know how that feels. I'm, I'm interested. And I think it's just such a great, like, simple life hack to start yeah. this journey of getting more yeah. comfortable sitting in that lack of control. Right. You're, you're right. right. If we can't do it with something that simple and safe, how the hell are we going to yeah. do it with something more complicated and emotional? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you for your time. Thank you for your insights. And I feel very grateful someone like you is out there uh, talking to organizations and helping them go on this journey. You know, as, as someone sort of um, thinking about the next generation in the workforce and how we move towards, uh, you know, a way of leading that engages and empowers people more effectively. I think it's fabulous that you're out there helping people navigate that. So thank you for the work you do too. Thanks for helping us spread the word. Thanks for listening. I hope you feel inspired and have some practical ideas for how you can go and fuel the difference you want to see in your life, organization, or community. If that's a yes, please take a moment to send us feedback Shoot me a tweet at Holly Ransom, leave a review for this coffee pod, or head to www.coffeepodswithholly.com and send in your questions and suggestions for future coffee pods. But for now, until our next coffee break, I've been Holly Ransom. Thanks for fueling your difference with me.